Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The centre of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think for all of those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night. Whatever time of day it is, Project Kashmir's listener. Today we're recording in Google Campus Warsaw, which means that the acoustic quality isn't quite our usual five-star experience. You'll hear background noise, but I think the content is going to make it worth it. Today I'm talking to Rudra Deb Mitra. Rudra Deb, I'm sorry to mispronounce your name. I get it wrong every time. Uh, Rudra Deb, I met... um, before an event in Warsaw a couple of weeks ago, thanks to the CAM Entrepreneurs Initiative. He saw a post I put on the Yahoo groups, which serves that community of the alumni of Oxford and Cambridge University living in Poland. And he made contact with me before the event we met. Just earlier this week, we're in at the moment on the 23rd of March 2017 in a continent called Europe. If you're listening a thousand years from now, that's we're in Poland, a country that existed around this time. Um, so he came to Krakow on Monday to talk to Krakow Enterprise Mondays about entrepreneurship. And he has an interesting background and history that we'll post in the show notes. Um, however, rather than me introduce you, uh, maybe you could just tell uh, Project Kashmir's listeners how you introduce yourself. If you meet someone at a party and they've never met you before and they don't know anything about you, what do you say? Well, I mean, I normally would say that um, I would ask questions, what do you do? But in general, if I just have to answer, uh, introduce myself, well, I originally from India, and I left India 14 years ago, so 2003. My background was basically on machine learning, artificial intelligence. Then I went to uh, do my master's from Cambridge, and since then I have built, been a co-founder and a founding member of four startups. Um, my startups were, two of them were in Silicon Valley, one was in Belgium, and one in uh, Cambridge. And like Cambridge, UK or Cambridge, Massachusetts? UK. Okay, yeah. good. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think I consider myself, you know, I, I, a world person. I lived in eight countries. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of, in short, describes myself. Okay, and um, in a moment I'm going to ask you to put some numbers on the startup because one of the features of the startup community is that it's very easy to give the impression that you're a business person when in fact you're not because you've never run a successful business. And I know that from our prior conversations that some of your businesses have achieved an interesting scale. Um, 
But apart from your business, one of the other interesting things you said when we first met is that you're enjoying doing nothing and that you're a minimalist. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to me you're doing nothing because you're financing some people to do research on new projects and also you're doing some mentoring and coaching. So could you, if you could explain more about what you're doing at the moment and what you mean by doing nothing when you clearly aren't doing nothing. So for me, doing nothing is is a, is a state of mind than actually doing nothing. So when I say I do, do nothing, so, so the first question that you ask me is how do I introduce myself? And if I'm doing nothing, and I would normally have nothing to say, so I'm more asking questions uh, to people and getting to know them more than trying to sell myself. So it's more to do with uh, the state of mind. Or for example, if um, I'm like today was a good example, I was just I missed my bus and I was just sitting in the in the stop. And normally, a lot of people will perhaps rush to to take the next bus or to take another way to reach to the destination. And I just wanted to just sit there and relax for 15 minutes, doing in a way nothing. So it's more to do with the state of mind and relaxation and able to listen more. Um, than actually doing nothing at all, all the time. Okay, and active listening is a really important skill um, in entrepreneurship, but not only entrepreneurship, obviously. People say that a, a human being has one mouth and two ears, with the implication you should listen twice as much as you speak. Many people, including me, don't do that, and we talk too much and we listen too, listen, too little. But I think in your in your talk you gave at Krakow Enterprise Mondays uh, on Monday evening, you talked about the importance of listening. Perhaps you could say what the benefits of listening are, why, why you think that's important. So in terms, in the context of being an entrepreneur, I think once you start listening, you are able to find the problems. So often we, when we are trying to go out and solve a problem, which I think is a core reason for someone to be an entrepreneur, uh, we either are bringing our own biases or our own ideas or the people that we, you know, our friends or family and not really trying to understand is that problem for a wider audience or is it a problem for the people that we want to solve for. So the, the listening part is more required when you are trying to find a problem or trying to listen, well, it's, it's required at any phase, but more so often in the beginning, because you're trying to pivot uh, and try to see if what you are doing has any value for your potential customers. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. I mean, certainly, I, I, I the, my take on this, which is obviously a different way of describing the same idea, is that a good salesperson asks questions, that uh, good questions are the key to conversation and it's, it's even possible to have a conversation where you ask 20 or 30 questions, you say nothing other than your questions, and the person you talk to says, we had a great conversation, and in fact, they know nothing about you other than the questions they've asked. Um, so so I, I think good questions and listening skills are, are very important. And if there's, one, if there's one takeaway that any listener to this podcast takes today, being good at listening is, 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 is certainly a useful skill. Um, if we can jump back a bit to your, your businesses, um, you told me something very interesting at breakfast yesterday in Krakow where you described how your business was doing quite well, but you just decided to stop. Um, could you put some numbers on that business just in terms of like approximate revenue and, and profit and also explain the logic by which, which I found quite difficult to handle, um, but I'm 
Um, he's still here, so I managed to cope um, to explain uh, how big the business was, how much money it was making, and why you and your co-founders decided to basically stop that business. So in terms of numbers, our revenue was around $7 million in that range. Uh, U.S. dollars. U.S. dollars, sorry. <laughs> yeah, not fully shot. <laughs> um, and uh, profits were um, in the range of, I'll say, quite close to like 40%, 50%, so 3 million plus kind of profit margins. Um, and why did we stop it? So one of the reasons that I think I want to be an entrepreneur is besides solving a problem is to learn. And if I think that I'm doing something that doesn't make me learn new things, it's I, I didn't have to rethink that if this is something that I want to do. And last year, I felt there was a time for me and also other co-founders, but I think also personally for me that I felt we reached to a stage where at least for me, it was not challenging enough. And I felt that I'm not learning enough every single day. So, and I wanted to try something completely different, new, where uh, there is a much higher learning curve. So mm -hmm. I think it's a lot of personal decision rather than in terms of business sense. I think it's kind of perhaps a bit stupid, but um, I have always followed a uh, path which is kind of not understood by brain, but, you know, just follow my gut. So Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. There's a, a famous entrepreneur who I know that many, many listeners of, of, to this podcast know, Gary Vaynerchuk, who was um, the founder of VaynerMedia, Wine Library TV, also investor in Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, amongst other things, early stage investor, who says that self-awareness is the vital the vital skill of any entrepreneur, but in fact any human being, to be aware of what's important to you, not so much worrying about what um, other people think. And, you know, for sure, from a financial point of view, it may not have made sense, but if it works for you, then that shows that something's more important than money, which makes me flip back to our previous conversation about your upbringing and your childhood and what your parents feel. Yeah, um, you know, to be sitting in Google Campus Warsaw when you come from India is quite a journey. And how did, and for many of our listeners, uh, most of them Polish, uh, there's always the question of the expectations of the society you live in, the expectations of your family or friends of what's regarded as a regular normal career. <coughs> could, you, could you say what it looked like when you were a kid in India, what your parents hoped for, what you and your school friends and colleagues hoped for, what was normal, and how far away you've gone from the normal path of, a, of an Indian kid? Well, in short, completely like my, my life in last 10, 15 years has been like a dream. Uh, I can't imagine where am I now, even in 10 years, 15 years ago. So I come from a family um, which is kind of lower middle class in India. So we, my, my father was a government servant, an honest government servant, so he had often no money. An honest government servant. Yeah, which, uh, I guess for some people that doesn't mean anything, but for other people they know, exa India, they, they know exactly what this means. You know? <laughs> and my mother was a housewife, or is a housewife, so we never had a lot of money. And the only way I knew was to work hard. And that's what my mother always had said, that if you want to have a decent life, you need to work hard. 
Um, but you know, we we come from a family where no one ever started any business, and even today, my father still thinks perhaps that business is for people who are kind of not morally honest. I mean, you can only make money if you are not morally honest. That's what my father believes, and I think still. Um, but will, will your father be listening to this podcast if you sent him a link? I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Is there anything you'd like to? I would like to say that I disagree with this perspective. That for sure, some business people are disgusting and corrupt and dishonest. But equally, some business people make a better contribution to society than people who never started a business. So I think that there's a spectrum, like in any, just like a police, a policeman or policewoman or teacher can be a good or bad teacher. A business person can be a good or bad person. So, so daddy. Um, this is my perspective. Yeah, I agree because uh, my father's perspective comes from growing up in socialistic India. So India was only became capitalistic late 90s when it opened up. So before that, it was quite socialism. So the government and everyone was kind of trying to provide the same messaging. And, and he um, was lived in a state called West Bengal, which was ruled by Communist Party for 25 years. So, I mean, a lot of that comes from that background. Um, anyway, so so it has been a long journey, and even for me, the the whole thing changed, which I, have, I think I've said already to Richard was being in Cambridge. I think when I in Cambridge, I had the experience of meeting um, specifically Twitter co-founder or LinkedIn co-founder, but I remember my conversation I had with Twitter co-founder, and after talking to him for 15, 20 minutes, I realized that he doesn't seem to be any smarter than than me, but perhaps he got a better opportunity than what I had. And that made a huge difference because then I started believing that even I perhaps could build something. Because before that, I never believed uh, that I could build something. So, so that since then, you know, I've been very lucky to work with great people. One of the key aspects which um, I forgot or I didn't talk about much in my talk in Enterprise Monday, which and it's very essential for me is to work with smart people. So my last startup that was, I said it was quite successful. Actually, I didn't believe that the idea is great. When uh, the other two guys came to me and I was, I was thinking why it could work, but they were extremely smart guys. And I always try to work with people who are smarter than me so that at least I could learn a lot. Um, only recently, like last week, I, I started working with, um, um, two guys. One is an um, XMIT who sold his company, which was sold to Skype, and a professor from Princeton. And they reached out and they would they asked if I would like to work with them. And I'm I'm very happy that I'm start collaborating with them because I think I would learn a lot from them. So for everyone, I would say that people who are looking to to build something, I think keep the learning as a key aspect, and work with people who are smarter than you. Hire people who are smarter than you so that you can continue learning. Yes, interestingly, my, my, my daughter's boyfriend who's studying IT in Edinburgh, uh, computer forensics in Edinburgh, Dan, he's, he's got a job in a company which is basically providing us web hosting services and he's, I think, going to be the only IT guy in the company. It's, it, it's, I, I think it's confirmed and if it isn't, then apologies. But I was saying to him that on the one hand, you know, he's a young man just 20 years old so the experience of being an important person in a small organization he'll learn a lot the disadvantage is that he won't learn much from his colleagues in terms of his professional development so you know there's a wide spectrum of things that you can learn there are pluses and minuses of each particular route but 
but the you need to be aware of what you can learn and be aware of what you can't learn. If you work in a huge company like Facebook or Google, you will be working with some of the smartest, most talented people on the planet. At the same time, you won't have the sense of responsibility of your own thing in the, that you will in a small organization. And I, I think that's, that's, that's pretty important. Um, so, so coming back to this idea of um, uh, guys not being so different from you, there's a very, uh, I'll put in the show notes a post to an amazing talk, talk by Ashton Kutcher that uh, Ashton Kutcher, for many people, he's the Hollywood sex idol, attractive young man. He's also a highly successful investor in, in startups. And there's an amazing talk he gave to the uh, Teen Idol Awards, I think it is, where he, he walks out there and he, he tells the he tells this audience, which are not expecting a serious, a serious talk, that the thing they have to remember that the world is built by people who aren't smarter than them. The world is people built by people who uh, take the initiative. And I always feel that it's important not just how smart people are, but how motivated they are. And I'm interested to know what you think about that when you're assessing people, because you get very talented people who don't do that much because they're not motivated. And where do you think motivation comes from? And do you, do you agree with me that it's important? And beyond whether it's important, where does it come from in people? Well, yeah, motivation is absolutely important, and I think perseverance comes from, you know, the motivation. And that's why I keep on stressing on the point of the why, because I think motivation, I could be motivated in doing something and might not be motivated in doing something else. So motivation is not a, like, anyone is motivated to do everything. So that's why, for me, when I try to work with someone, I always see what makes the person motivated. Is the person passionate about the problem that I'm or he or she is trying to solve? If the motivation is, for example, with money or being famous, often that motivation dies out, let's say, in six months if you don't get the results. But solving a problem is a motivation that always, I think, stays. Um, so that's the one way I actually try to understand uh, whether the person is motivated enough to, to continue doing um, and be perseverant enough to, to follow it even at difficult times. So if, for example, there's two questions I, I often try to ask is one, what you do on a Friday or a Saturday evening? And if the person says, oh, I go to club, I go to parties, most likely I perhaps will not work with the person. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that um, I, I, I would prefer to work with people who are willing to have that kind of motivation to sit on a Friday or a Saturday evening and talk about a problem or about some uh, interesting thing. The other question that I ask is, um, about being rich is that do you, you know, are, are you motivated to be, um, uh, does money drive you? Or does, is that something very, very important for you? And if the person says yes, then I normally would be not inclined to work a lot because I think people should not be motivated primarily by, by money. Uh, money would come if you are successful in doing what you are doing, but should not be the main motivation. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a, an interesting question which we could talk about for hours. And I think that the um, for me the question is, and it's a it's a good question, but it's actually a more interesting question even than whether people are motivated by money is what they will do with money if they have money. Because for some people, the you know, it, and it's very important to look at people's backgrounds. That if people come from a so a fairly low-income background, maybe the financial issues were a big issue in their childhood and their 
their motivation is not to have the problems of their childhood or to take care of their family, but then once they get beyond this Maslow triangle of basic needs, then it's a question of what will they do when they, when they make enough money that they're no longer worried about the basic needs. And you know, I always say this is very important among co-founders in a business because at one level money is a benchmark of success of a business. A business that doesn't make a profit is a hobby, not a business, and the profit is a measure of the value that the, the business is creating in one perspective. But then the question is, among your co-founders is, okay, once you're through the breakthrough, you've established a market position, you've got a product that customers want to buy from you, you can deliver it at a much lower cost than the cost you're selling it for, you have a sustainable business, but then what? And if one of your co-founders is highly ambitious and say, you know, well, once we make a million dollars, let's think how we can make $10 million grow across our domestic market, across the country, across the continent, go global. And, you know, for them, you know, maybe... It makes no difference to their lifestyle if they're making a million dollars revenue or a hundred million dollars or a billion revenue, but they're ambitious. They want to, they want whatever they do to be significant. The money isn't really the driver, it's the success of the, the enterprise. Whereas for other people, the moment they make a hundred thousand dollars a year net, they're going to go and sit on the beach. And so I, w I would say it's not just how much money, it's also what people want to do with the money. And you know, some of the fabulously wealthy Americans are giving a lot of money away and supporting foundations. We can think of you know Bill Gates and Melinda Gates Foundation or even recently Warren Warren Buffett you know yes they're billionaires but they're trying to deploy their wealth in some way positively yeah I mean I agree with that I mean I have uh, nothing to disagree completely um, so so yeah I mean I, I, I what I really want to mention that often people especially first-time entrepreneurs don't realize the hard work that is behind building something and they expect results too fast. Patience. You need to be patient and persistent. Yes, and Persist persistent pers and patient. And if often someone is said, I want to be rich, they are perhaps thinking they want to be rich in six months to a year. And, and they are not willing to go beyond that kind of struggle that is required to make something successful. Yeah, I, I think the culture is important. You came from India, you come from India, I came from the UK. Americans have a different cultural context. The bench, I think in some cultures, the benchmark of success is financial. So it's not really the money. It's just like being seen to be successful. In some cultures, is more to do with money. In other cultures, it may be something different and people are influenced by their culture. But I want to come back to the issue of self awareness and knowing what you want that my American business partner who was actually one of on the stage earlier uh, Kimon Fontakidis um, said that when he meets someone in a business meeting he or even a potential colleague in work or an employee he asks three questions what does what does he say he wants or she what does he think he wants and what does he really want you know because he studies psychology and quite often people you know what they believe is not quite the same as what they really are and there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, different psychological um, perspectives which are important and in terms of how to build teams and manage and motivate people he says that it's actually easiest to manage people who are motivated by money it's much harder when it's status or glory or fame because people are different and you have to that probably and how do you feel about managing people I don't know did you often have people reporting to you did you have to manage large teams do you have any reflections on that issue I, I don't like managing people simple as that I, I think one of the reasons that I would never work I enjoy being an entrepreneur, I enjoy solving problems, I enjoy working with people who are motivated, self-motivated, but for me management is of people is an overhead that I always would avoid. But it's necessary, someone has to do it, right? 
and perhaps that would be not be the me. I wouldn't be that person doing that. But this is this is an important conversation for people listening because is that you know if you think about what you're good and bad at, what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy, if it's valuable and useful, then you're looking for other people in your team who have the complementary skills, but other people are excellent at this and that's their key skill and you know, you may be brilliant at coding in Ruby or some, uh, you know, whatever it is, some functional programming language which is extremely valuable, but if you can't imagine managing a team of 10 salespeople without, you know, without staying up late at night and worrying about how to do it and there's someone else, he, he can't code and in the, you know, in the marketplace maybe a sales manager isn't as valuable as someone who's excellent at managing code but if you don't have that skill, it's absolutely fine to go into business with someone who does, right? Absolutely. And I think what I would perhaps do is find a person, even if not a, at the level of co-founder, or hire someone who has that skill who could manage a team. I think as an entrepreneur, the first year or the first couple of years, you're solving a lot of problems which are unknowns, which were... You, you don't know how the sales would work, what pitch would work, what is the sales pipeline, who is to reach out. Once those problems are solved and you are ready to scale, I think it's the time, I think, to bring someone in who is kind of a manager kind of role, who could run the processes, who could build a team around him and run and execute that kind of the pitch that has been developed perhaps by me over the last year or something. So I'm very good or I'm excited about solving a problem. I'm excited about knowing an unknown. I remember this when I was uh, working in in Belgium. I, I had uh, my miss, well, my my the CEO of the company said to me that there are two kinds of people: one who are driv who are excited about the unknowns and who are afraid of the unknowns. And he always said, "I am the one who is very excited of or I, I love going to the unknowns." And this is actually very true about me. So I, the moment something is known, it just ends up being a bit not interesting for me. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I, I think that the way I would do it would be bring a person who is good at that, and I know I'm not good at it. But do you think, do you think that you can do this? As a, one of the challenges I've had as an entrepreneur is I quite often have, um, I have an idea. I potentially have enough money to hire someone to implement my idea, but unless they have some kind of ownership of the idea, they're a co-founder. They behave. They behave like an employee. That even and there's a, a sense. I have a feeling, and I'm. I'm not sure I'm correct here, which is why I'm interested in your perspective. That it's. It's almost impossible to pay someone to be your entrepreneurial leader, and then and at the end of the day, if you're then building the team and you say so you every business has the three elements: the product guy who builds stuff, the sales marketing guy who sells it, and the finance guy who who does it, and maybe an operations guy in the background to support those three. That if all those people are hired people reporting to you, you're still the entrepreneur and you're still managing them, so you can't escape this role of being the, the leader. And I always wonder, can you really pay people to be your entrepreneurial leader? Is that a feasible option? So uh, the way I do, and I'm, you know, I would answer that question, yes or no, perhaps in a few years, if that works out completely or not. But <coughs> I think I never, or I don't pay someone market salary. That's something I, I always make sure that I'm not paying them the market salary. So the person has to take a cut, um, which is often a survival money or something that would let you live decent enough, but will not build, have you have the luxury. And if someone is willing to take that cut, and uh, work, that is a good indication that the person is perhaps driven by building something, not just about And, you, and, and you're giving them equity in return? Yes. <clears throat> and what sort of share of equity do you think that, 
what, how much has to be at the end of the, say on a five year scale, at the end of five years, how much do you think should be with you and how much should be with the guys who, who did all that work? I mean, if the company survives for five years, that means it must have been successful. And if those guys have driven it, they definitely should own definitely majority. But I think even, let's say, if I compare to Y ratio, because if there are future investors, it's different, but it should be 90 to 10 or even... Uh, 80 to 20, something like that. I, I, I do not see in any way, if they have been the one who drove the business, they should be definitely owning a majority of the, of the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds, sounds about right to me. That, um, And sometimes I think that people just want too much. They want to keep the lion's share of the equity. Maybe they're financing it, so they feel that as they're financing it, it should be them. But on the other hand, I think the approach of saying, you know, if the market salary would be 10, I will pay you four, but you the extra six is going to be equity in the business or to some pre-agreed formula is is absolutely right because then it means that you somehow the guys are investing. Um, and I'm I'm in, just like taking a complete change of topic. Yeah, there are two more things I want to talk about. Ask you about your artificial artificial intelligence business, but I'm also interested. Um, or I think the listeners might be interested to hear what how you spend your time, given that you're quote doing nothing. What you where you get information from and where you get ideas from? Because living in Warsaw in Poland, and I heard yesterday that you're considering moving to Krakow, though perhaps not for reasons that will make my Krakow colleagues happy. Um, the um, the question of whether we're in the right place to pick up the kind of problems that might be global is is on my mind because I feel that. You know the the big economies of the world are not Warsaw and Krakow. This is New New York, Tokyo, London, Mumbai. Not you know we're in small cities and are not the richest country in the world. So will we really encounter the biggest problems living here? So where do you get where do you get your ideas from? Where do you get your information from? Where do you get your inspiration from? And what does your day look like? And then we'll move on to your current business projects. So I think um, there were some few of those questions. One by one, um, I will start with the how do I my day look like? Well, I, I don't think I work more than like really work. When I say really work, I mean, of course, in many ways, we are working 24 hours. I mean, I don't believe I stop working. Okay, maybe in sleep I do. Are we working now is the question. Um, <laughs> to me, this is, you could consider this kind of a work also, like talking to someone, learning about something new. Mm -hmm. But when I say real work, I don't think I work more than six hours a day. Uh, I don't think one should work more than six hours a day because you need time to think, you need time to read, you need time to learn. Um, so that's my actual work. After that, I think I spend at least um, three to four hours reading. I, I read everyday tech crunch, medium. I try, I'm, I read at least, uh, not, I'm, I use Audible, so at least one book a week, or if not, then one book in two weeks. Um, and um, other than that, I, I'm, I do sports. So actually, I um, realized that the three most important things in my life to be healthy, physically, emotionally, and to have people around me. And business actually not even comes in my first three priorities. So, and every day I make sure that at least I'm doing things that makes solves those three main priorities of my life. So I go swimming, I play badminton, I kind of sometimes I also train myself in boxing. Um, I meditate a lot. That helps me emotional. I I am I also dance tango. So I kind of dance three to four times a week. Um, I like dancing tango. So yeah, I'm not like just working, working. I mean, I do many other things than other than work. 
Um, but even I remember when I'm dancing tango, perhaps my mind is still thinking of some opportunities or some ideas. It's just how it is. In terms of being in Warsaw, it's an interesting question. Um, actually, I would disagree with you here. I, I think I have seen more opportunities in Poland than perhaps in, in, in San Francisco or in Mumbai or in, in, in Bangalore. The reason that uh, when you are in a country like Poland, you see things that often locals don't see that. And this is very, very important. Me living in so many countries when I'm here, what made me stay here is also, of course, the opportunities that lies here. Um, in, in Bombay or in Bangalore, it's full of people already who are perhaps uh, looking at all the different options or opportunities that are there. So I, I, I actually think that um, that perhaps would be the next question. I will answer those questions based on the opportunities. But uh, I'm more excited to be in Warsaw in terms of opportunities than in San Francisco or in London or in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's interesting because I, I have a feeling that if you have the imagination and you've had the great luck or privilege or achievement of living in multiple countries, so you're, even if you're not there, you've been there. And I think that you know, I was, when I was a child, I felt I didn't travel very much. And about the time I was 25, I realized maybe I'd traveled quite a lot. I'd seen enough of the world to have different perspective. I'd been in very poor developing countries, been in communist countries, been in many West European countries. So you have these different perspectives. And even if I'm not in America, I've been there and I know what's going I feel I know what's going on there. I may be wrong. It's very important. I, I always try to be aware of the fact that I may think something and that I'm aware of the fact that my 100% belief might be wrong or but might only be true in a certain context. But it's easy to imagine what the environment in San Francisco is like or New York is like even when I'm not there. And if you're reading the same news sources, I certainly felt that as I lived in Poland these 26 years that once the internet began to work properly, it didn't make so much difference to be away because I was getting my news, my information sources in the same way I would. It doesn't really matter where in the world you're reading your iPad or your, or your laptop, you're getting the same, the same data sources. So it doesn't make so much difference as it, as it, as it used to. Um, and, so, and, and also I think it's really important to remember that lesson. One of our recent podcasters, uh, interviewees, Lynn Skotnitsky, said, you know, look after your health. That's number one. It doesn't matter how much money you've got if you're sick. And maybe if you're sick, you're um, chronically sick, you can't fix it, then you have to make the best of it. But you do have a chance to look after your body. And it's the only body you've got to the, for now, anyway, until <laughs> technology comes along. So if we can just move on um, before we close to some thoughts about your artificial intelligence ideas and businesses. Um, what do you, what leads you to be interested in that? Why have you chosen that area? And what, what's, the, what's the big idea or the problem you're trying to solve? Um, so my AI background goes back from my university days. So um, why did I choose then AI was because um, I think uh, it's, I don't really remember it, but um, I think it was perhaps that in, while in India, I wanted to do something different and something new than what others are not doing. And I came across a professor who was an AI researcher. And I think that's how it basically started the whole AI thing uh, way back in 2003, I think. So um, it was not a well thought uh, plan in any ways. It was perhaps just an accident. But yes, I was good in mathematics, so it helped me in some ways. Um, 
what do I see now as an AI? I think now there's a kind of huge boom about AI. Although I do, ha I'm quite quite skeptical of how the current approaches of AI would fit into solving the global problems. I think it's good at solving some problems like speech recognition or image recognition and things like that. But when it comes of intelligence, I, I just don't think that the current approaches are good. I actually wrote a post about it that why that we need to rethink about the approaches that AI is currently doing to solve the bigger problems. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot based on ethics things. Um, well, ethical AI, and, and that's a whole different topic, so I don't want to go in. Um, I, I think, um, and, and uh, you asked me also about like what the current projects and how they are related to AI. Mm -hmm. um, so at this point, the two projects that I'm doing, they are not... And directly, I'm not doing anything in terms of AI because um, w they are still solving a problem which doesn't require an AI. But I could see a way that um, we could use the the AI to to enhance the experience or enhance the output of of those. Um, but at this moment, I'm more interested or most trying to solve the the core problem without the, the need of, uh, of a technology in a certain way is actually. I mean, I, I think that often problems should be solved, if possible, without a technology, solve the core problem, and then think how can the technology help mm -hmm. scale this up or if improve the efficiency rather than start from a technology and say, how can I use this technology? I think that's very, very important insight that sometimes people worry too much about the tool and not about the, the, the problem. So are, are there any projects you're working on now that you can share? Because that's very general. You, maybe you don't want to. No, no, I am, I'm happy. I mean, <laughs> that's what I said. One of the things I always wish share. So this comes back to the question that you asked about opportunities while being in Warsaw and in Poland. So I think uh, this part of the world, uh, one, let's say two problems that I'm tackling, one is on tourism. Uh, I, I'm, I myself, I'm a, I love traveling. I'm, I'm a sailor, I'm a climber, and I'm so, um, have been in a way surprised the beauty of this part of the world, which I think is highly underrated and not well marketed, specifically for country, in country like India. Um, and I, I think, uh, for example, in terms of data, I was reading an article which says that there are 50 million Indians planning to travel in the next five years, outbound travel, spending over $2 billion. It's a huge market. Now, I, I would like to promote, uh, encourage Indians to come to this part of the world and see the beauty of here, but also get to know the local culture um, and not just make a photo op. So what happens a lot in India that most travelers use a travel agency who provide a package tour and they are just, which ends up being a fit for all uh, photo op kind of tour. And I want to change that and I want to make it like where people from India cross culturally come here, meet the local experience, the local culture, and also see the beauty of these parts. So that's one of the venture. At this point, I'm primarily focused at creating content because I think that would be the key differentiator. Because at this point, we have to educate the Indian audience. Um, and it has been, it's doing well. I mean, we already made money. We, um, so that's, that's, I'm, I'm quite happy about that. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's very, very um, uh, interesting. And I, I had a, a business that it didn't, didn't work out in the sense that we achieved anything. But I had an insight that I read in The Economist magazine that the number of individual Chinese tourists 
was tiny but growing, and a tiny number of individual Chinese tourists is a lot of people because the market, the number of Chinese tourists is so big, rather similar to India, that the historic way was always in groups, but uh, you know, 1% of, of Chinese tourists are beginning to travel individually, suddenly that's 500,000 people. And I wondered what Krakow would look like through the eyes of a Chinese tourist on, on, through their smartphone or their tablet or on the web, because for sure most of the tourist sites are not localized from the perspective of a Chinese tourist. And so that was the idea. And um, the, the girl who, was, who spoke Chinese from Krakow got a scholarship and now works in Beijing and she's not available. But the idea is interesting. And a previous podcast interview we did with Mark Bradshaw uh, more than a year ago is the founder of Eataway, which gives people the chance. And in fact, the, his, his wife, Marta Bradshaw, is speaking tomorrow in TEDx Warsaw about this pro project, which is a kind of combination of couchsurfing and Airbnb for food that you eat, uh, you eat dinner in other people's houses on a commercial basis. But this is a terrific uh, way to get exposure to local culture. You don't just meet one person, you meet a group of people having dinner in someone's house. And there's a whole story attached to that. And I think that a lot of tourism is not nearly as nice an experience or as valuable an experience or as good an experience as it could be. And so there's a huge potential value to give people a better experience than they're traveling than just me in front of the Eiffel Tower or me in front of the Palace of Cultura here in Warsaw. So I, I think you're really onto something there. Yes, and I, I think beside that, of course, there are platforms who are providing or creating that experience. What often they lack is in-depth understanding of a cross-cultural experience. So often they try to solve the problem as a kind of a flat horizontal problem. So they are not trying to take into account the needs of a particular person coming from a given culture. And this is something which I think is, uh, which I want to focus on that how it is for an Indian traveler coming to Europe because their needs are very different than how an American wants to come here. So it's, uh, and, and I see that. And what you said about the Chinese individual traveler, I completely agree. I see that same in India. I mean, I often engage in various, I write in different um, forums, like in Quora and, and, and in Facebook forums, and I see a lots of questions people asking about. They want to travel solo. There are two people, three people. How can we do this? So this is definitely a growing, growing trend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so certainly. And I, I think that this, is, this, this might be a subject for a, a separate conversation. In, in, in Krakow, we organized... Uh, something called the One Krakow Community Showcase, where different groups of foreigners who live in Krakow, different foreign communities, organize a showcase of what they're doing and, and the question of how far they were integrated or not integrated with the local community was important. And, you know, this, these, these are particularly in today's world where there are some powerful forces trying to put up barriers. It's very important to give opportunities and access uh, to people with different perspectives and with different expectations who are, are actually positive and want to want to want to work together to make um to make cultures more familiar with each other and more tolerant and accepting of each other okay i think we need to wrap this in just a moment but before we do that is there obviously we, we will sh share in the show notes a link to your blog posts and anything else you want us to share so people who want to follow up directly with you know how to reach you but is there anything else you'd like to share in terms of the main thrust of this podcast is innovation and entrepreneurship in central europe is there anything else you'd like to share or encourage people to do or or to feel as a result of listening to this this this, this conversation 
I think one thing that I say to everyone is uh, I, I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs I have met, at least particularly in Poland or in this part, don't really enjoy uh, the journey. I think often people are too focused at the success and not really enjoying the, the, the journey, the, the hard work and you know going through the process. To me, what I would recommend to everyone is, and I, which actually one of the questions I also ask is, will you do what you are doing even if you fail? And if the answer is yes, then I think that's that's a very good answer because then you are really also enjoying every single day and not just going for a big goal, hoping to be a big success or making a lot of money. Because many times you will not make a success, you may not make a lot of money, but at least you will enjoy doing what you do. I think yeah. that's something very yeah, important. The, I, I've shared this before, but it made such an impression on me. I'm going to share it again that there's an amazing Australian... A comedian and musician and theatre director Tim Minchin, who in his graduation address to the University of West Australia, where he had got an honorary degree, he was giving one of these talks to the graduating students. He said he had nine ideas, and his number one idea was don't have a dream. If you have a long-term dream, you may spend all your life working towards your dream, and then when you get there, if it's not so good, it's too late to do anything about it. So have short-term goals, work as hard as you can on them, and maybe you see something out of the corner of your eye that attracts you, but whatever you're doing, if you don't enjoy the present, is probably a mistake. Um, so, so, Project Hashemish listener, thanks very much for um, your time and attention on this episode. I think it's, it's certainly been valuable and interesting, interesting for me, and I hope to you guys. If you enjoy this, please go onto YouTube, go onto iTunes, leave us a five-star review. If you absolutely hate it, just send me an email. Or, you know, we, but we do welcome constructive feedback. Suggestions of people to interview are always, always welcome. And if, if there's one thing you can do to um, make me appreciate the effort I'm putting in. If, if there's one thing you can do is please share an episode with, with someone so that they can sign up and listen. Once again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com or on iTunes where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectcashmere.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber with audio editing by Juan Wally. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here and in this connected world we don't need everyone here but but the you know the artists and the designers the creatives they're very much part of what we what we've got and what we need so if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your 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 creative juices will run then 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 this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself and I think you can make history in Poland I think you can be part of something much bigger 
than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 